Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Women tend to want to be perfect candidates for anything before they will apply. Now, as I get asked by a lot of females, you know, sort of for counsel, should I apply for this? Should I do this? My answer is always, you know, just just give it a shot. Welcome to Imposters, a podcast from The Telegraph. Have you ever had that creeping feeling that you don't belong somewhere or that you don't deserve your success, even though you know deep down that's not true? Yeah, me too. I'm Claire Cohen, The Telegraph's women's editor and co-founder of our Women Mean Business initiative. In this podcast, we square up to imposter syndrome and demand to know what its deal is. In each episode, I talk to a woman who is out there carving a successful career in a challenging industry, whether that's food or film, fashion or even flying to the moon. I want to know if they've ever experienced imposter syndrome. If so... What convinced them to keep going anyway? If not, what's their secret? So without further ado, let's meet this week's imposter. Today, I'll be speaking to a woman who hasn't so much broken the glass ceiling as smashed through the Earth's atmosphere. As NASA's first female chief flight director, she's responsible for everything from missions to the International Space Station to putting the first woman on the moon in 2024. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to have that sort of responsibility. So let's find out. Welcome to Imposters, Holly Ridings. So Holly, how do you go about explaining your job to other people? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good question. How to explain being the chief flight director, right? Because it has such a, a, a span, you know, as you, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, the, the simplest answer is, is I'm responsible for all of NASA's human spaceflight operations. We've got the International Space Station. It flies, you know, 365 days a year, people always living on it. Uh, We have our commercial crew program, right, where we've partnered with several companies to take our crew to and from the space station. And then, of course, Artemis, uh, where we're going to go, you know, back to the moon, the the first woman and the next man. And, And so really, you know, I'm responsible for making sure all of those missions get planned, you know, people are trained and then and then we we fly and execute them in a successful way that that keeps our crew safe. 
I love how matter of fact about that you are, like just reeling them off. Oh, yeah, just, you know, responsible for the International Space Station, sending people to the moon. I love how second nature that is to you. And it just sounds so fantastical and unimaginable to me and probably to our listeners. So let's talk a bit about Artemis, which you just mentioned, um, which means you will be directing the next moon landing from Mission Control in Houston, Texas in 2024. You've never led a team that's gone to the moon. How do you know you can? Yeah, so we actually we actually talk about that a lot, um, you know, with with our team here. You know, there, there's kind of two ways to do leadership, right? There's the way where you've done the thing, and then people uh, come after you, and you have all this, you know, knowledge and wisdom, and can tell them exactly, you know, what to look for and what to think about. And then there's, you know, the leadership where you know you're in charge of a team, but you're all doing a, a you know, a, a new thing, right? And so for our generation of of Space explorers, you know, going to the to the moon is is new, right? There are people that came before us that did that. We still have the opportunity to talk to them, and so that's really the first thing you do is is you look for people who have knowledge. So we're very lucky uh, in the flight director office, and also you know our crew office here at NASA that we have access to just some of those amazing people, uh, you know, that got us to the moon, you know, the first time, and. You know, we we try to learn from them. We talk a lot to them about, um, you know, what we call lessons learned. That's a term we use at NASA a lot. You know, the things you learn from doing something. Um, and then really you have to to learn how to sort of translate your experiences. Um, and by that I mean, okay, well, we lead missions that go to the International Space Station, but the things that we learn from doing that, how is that applicable? You may be going farther away from Earth. You know, your communication may be a little different, but how do you take what you've learned in that one environment and understand its applicability to the other environment? And that, you know, that takes some experience and some thought, but that's really kind of the other thing that that we focus on. And then maybe the third thing for for kind of leading a team to do something that you've not done is really just you've got to be open minded and, and expect you know, sort of expect the unknown. You, you don't know all the answers, right? Because you've never done it before. And so, you know, that's really a, a mindset for how you approach problem solving. That's interesting what you said about leadership, actually, because I've read that you've said before that you're not always the best qualified person in the room, but you're the person in charge. I mean, not everyone can handle that kind of being a leader of people who, in some respects, might have more expertise than you. How do you handle that? Is that something that might give you imposter syndrome? I think it's a thing you learn. Like when you start out young, I think you maybe you do feel a little bit like an imposter, right? You know, you're you're coming up through the ranks and now all of a sudden you've been, you know, elevated to maybe not a flight director, but but a leadership position where, you know, you have in space flight, you have a lot of subject matter experts, right? You know, you have a person who knows about power and a person who knows about life support and a person who knows about communication systems. And so very rarely does any one person know the details of all of those of all of those systems. And so in the beginning, when you start out as an expert in a single area and then you move from, you know, that role to a, a leadership role of any kind, it is very disorienting. Um, and so imposter syndrome, you know, when you say that, I always think the word imposter to me almost means like I don't deserve to be here. And I don't I've never really had that thought like I don't deserve to be here but I have, when I was younger, certainly had the thought like, okay, I'm here. How do I handle this? You know, right? Like, what what do I do? I'm not quite sure what to do. Like, because you have to develop all these skills. Like, okay, this this room of people is looking at me and I need to figure out how to, you know, help us go in the right direction. 
So depending on how you use the word imposter, you know, that that is certainly a disconcerting moment. Over time, you learn how to ask really good questions and those apply anywhere you go, no matter what your knowledge base is. You can ask really good questions. um, You build up your your experience and you can draw from, you know, those examples and, and you become, you become less afraid about people seeing that you don't know things and you become less afraid about making mistakes in front of people. So when you're speaking to the people who were responsible for the first moon landing, what is the most unexpected or surprising thing they've told you or piece of advice they've given you? I would tell you that it probably came from uh, Chris Kraft, who was the very first chief flight director, really the very first flight director at NASA. His name is, you know, on the building at Mission Control here at the Johnson Space Center in, in Houston, Texas. And and he, he gave it to me in sort of this uh, indirect way. I said, you know, Dr. Kraft, what advice can you give me? And, and he said, there's more than one way to get to Spring, Texas. Well, Spring, Texas is a, a city sort of north of Houston. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, how is that applicable to flying to the moon, right? But really, after some more discussion and thinking about it, what he meant is that there's really more than one way to solve a problem. If you get locked into what you think is the answer, especially in an environment where you've not ever experienced it, um, then you're really uh, sort of sort of discounting a lot of the creativity, a lot of you know, what your team will, will bring and the, and the ingenuity that, that comes from having that, that sort of open-minded growth mindset. I feel like that there's more than one way to solve a problem is great advice, whether you're working at NASA, sending people to the moon or whatever job you're doing. But when you're tasked with a project like the type you work on, which have, frankly, the eyes of the world on them, how do you tackle self-doubt or how do you stop yourself experiencing something like imposter syndrome? So at NASA, we do a lot of what we call contingency planning. Like think of all the really bad things that can happen and then think about what you're going to do about it ahead of time. And I think that helps you, you know, both from a, a personal standpoint, right, where you have to really individually be prepared to handle really, really stressful situations. Um, and it helps you from a technical standpoint, where you've considered the worst thing that can happen, how you would handle it, and then you have that sort of thought and uh, that body of, of information to draw from when you get into a situation that is, that, is really, that is really challenging. Now, those situations don't usually look exactly like what you thought of ahead of time, right? So that's kind of the trick. You can't get locked in. Okay, I thought of these five really bad things. I'm going to see one of those things exactly. But what it does is it trains you, right, again, both personally to handle the stress and technically to be able to look look for a solution in, in, those, in those really tough moments. We do a lot of training um, of those really bad days. You know, so if you're talking about going to the moon, you know, you could get halfway out there and something could go wrong with your spacecraft and you'd have to turn around and come home, right? And that's called an, an abort scenario. Abort is, you know, you're, you're not going to make it to your destination. Uh, and so what do those aborts look like? You know, how do you get home from different points in the mission in a way that is, you know, safe and successful for your crew? So we spend a lot of time um, talking about those those contingencies and and thinking about them personally and training for them as a team. How do you then personally handle the stress? I mean, do you wake up at 4am in the morning thinking about one of those worst case scenarios? 
so I try not to wake up at four in the morning because I really like sleep. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a sleeper. You know, some of those people who can sleep like three or four hours a night and be okay. I'm not one of those people. But, um, you know, so sometimes you do. I'd say for the most part, you know, you don't. You go to bed, you get a good night's sleep, you go do your job. Uh, there have been times in my career where, you know, you do you do spend some time at night and, you know, wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things that could go wrong. A lot of it is like a rehearsal, right? So if you're going to give a performance, whether it's, you know, playing the piano or giving a speech, you know how in your mind you, you really rehearse, you know, what you're going to do. And so I, in my mind, it, it's more like that. It's not ever this panic type feeling. It's more my brain is just rehearsing all the things that can go wrong, you know, how I might respond. Is there anything that we haven't thought of yet? That's kind of what it looks like in, in my head at four in, the morning, <laughs> four in the morning. Those are technical things that could go wrong, but you personally are responsible for making decisions that could impact people's safety, people's lives. I'm assuming billions of dollars worth of equipment. How do you deal with that pressure yourself? And do you have a sort of voice in your head that sometimes tells you that things might go wrong, that you might make the wrong decision? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. You know, how do you deal with it personally? I think everyone's a little bit different. The first part is preparation. You don't really wing it in human spaceflight, right? So on an individual level, as well as your team, but really if we're talking about the individual and myself, you know, you, you have a responsibility. So you, you do have to have a lot of personal discipline to be, you know, really over, over-prepared, um, requires a lot of communication. Uh, so there's a lot of people skills involved in human spaceflight because you, you can imagine it's a team, right? And something goes wrong and everyone's under pressure and you have to talk about uh, something, you know, very matter-of-factly, as you mentioned earlier, when the consequences of making a mistake, you know, really could, could uh, you know, be detrimental and, and even fatal for, you know, your friends who are in the, in the spaceship. And so... Um, you do have to really practice your communication. Um, I think our culture, you know, we try to be really hard on ourselves. Uh, so we do spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the the stuff that went wrong and the things we didn't do well. We always have to remind our, our, ourselves to actually, you know, be positive and, and talk about the positive stuff. I read somewhere that you've said previously that you almost have to train your brain not to focus on anything trivial or on the minutiae of life. Um, and you have to kind of almost shut things out and be like, no, I can't talk to you now. I can't deal with that right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, in any really stressful situation, you've only got so much, you've only got so much brain power, right? Anybody only has so much brain power and, and you have to really use it. So it's, it's really a question of focus, you know, and, and again, anybody can do this, right? You can, you know, sit at your desk and you're supposed to be writing an article because you have a deadline and, you know, then you can get distracted. Oh, you know, there's my cat or, oh, I need to pay a bill or, or, you know, I need to do a load of laundry. And so really it's all about, again, that discipline to, to really focus on, on the critical decision-making. The other thing I think is important for us when you talk about technical data is, you know, we have lots of information coming down from the space station as an example. I mean, if you go to the control center and look at the screens, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of numbers on them. And so the other part of really kind of shutting out all of all of the things that you don't need is is figuring out which information is important. And sometimes that can be really hard at the beginning of any kind of, you know, failure or issue, 
you almost have too much information. You know, the alarms go off on board, the crew wakes up, they're talking to you, they're looking at their screens. You see the messages on the ground. You have a bunch of data on your screens and, you know, it's red, it's yellow, it's making noise. And so trying to really quickly find the important pieces of information in, in that large, you know, body of information it is really a skill. I'm wondering if that ever spills over into your home life. If, like your <laughs> husband or your son or your dog comes up at home and you're like, um, hold on a second, I have not got time for this trivia. Just thinking about how to send someone to the moon here. <laughs> so my husband uh, would probably say yes. And I think uh, my friends would probably say yes. You know, it's 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 interesting. It, what I've learned as I get older is it, is it tracks somewhat with fatigue. And so, you know, as we all get older, we have to be careful to reset as individuals because when you get too tired, you lose the discipline to really focus on the critical things, right? And so I'd say in my personal life where, you know, I'm resting a little bit, uh, sometimes I do let all the minutiae creep in <laughs> a little more than at work. Um, but there, if we really have to solve a problem, even in my uh, even in my personal life, that you know everyone jokes, okay, you're using your flight director voice, you know, right? And uh, and so that that might be a common phrase that my friends and family say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I get that as well. In fact, my husband's always coming into the room and pulling faces at me and saying, "Oh my God, you're using your phone voice." In fact, he'll probably be saying, "You're using your podcast voice now." <laughs> So let's rewind a little bit, because I haven't actually asked you how you came to be working at NASA and how you got into space in the first place. Will you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, you know, the word we use or the word I use is, is origin story. Everybody kind of has their origin story. Like, I could probably ask you, you know, how do you end up in your job doing this? Um, but for me, I uh, actually was, was in elementary, so this is sixth grade, and uh they used to have us go to the cafeteria and uh, watch the space shuttle launches. And we watched live uh, the Challenger. And of course, it blew up on on launch, you know, killing the entire crew on board, right? So I'm kind of at the end of elementary school, sixth grade, you know, watching this happen live. And that really is, is my origin story. Now, because what, what it taught me or or impressed upon me was, you know, that I really wanted to get involved in space and make sure something like that didn't happen again. Now, sitting right there in that moment, did I have that exact thought? No, right. But it just made this huge impression on me. And so as I went along and really was fascinated with with spaceflight and then the human aspect of it, you know, that that need and that drive to really try to make things better, right? So my personality, I, I'm a huge team person. Um, I believe in teams and teamwork and sort of the power of teams. And I also am a, I'm a, I'm a fixer. You know, any problem, it doesn't matter, space, I just, there is not a problem I cannot solve. You know, that is my mentality, almost to a fault. Like at some point you should just stop trying, you know, with some problems. So to me, you know, having that event and watching it live, uh, you know, and it's still even hard to talk about today. So what's interesting about my origin story is it's born of a tragedy. When we talk about Artemis, one of the personal drives for me is so that, you know, my son and, and the generation that's coming up, you know, they see something positive, right? Because if you, if you take people who are older than I am who got into space 
their origin story was Apollo. You know, they sat in their parents' living room and watched people land on the moon. And that's why they wanted to believe or get into human spaceflight. They, why they believed in, you know, that human endeavor as a planet. We have that same drive, my generation, but it's born of a tragedy. And so trying to give the next generation, um, you know, that positive experience is a huge, you know, personal drive for me. So just to explain to our listeners, if they don't know, Artemis, tell me if I'm getting this right, has three stages. There's an uncrewed test flight this year, 2021. Then there's a first crewed test flight. And then finally, Artemis 3 in 2024, which will be, as I think at NASA, you put it, boots on the moon. Do you ever let yourself visualise that moment when the world is watching and Artemis has landed on the moon and you're all in mission control, jumping up and down and screaming because you've done it? I actually do. Um, I'm a huge believer in visualization, right, as a motivation tool. Um, I also will let myself visualize, you know, that moment and it going wrong. And again, mostly as a motivation tool, right? Because uh, now I have enough experience where um, I know what it feels like when it goes right. And I know what it feels like when it goes wrong. And both of those uh, can be used as motivation. You know, we talked about Challenger, but we had Columbia and I was already working at NASA when Columbia happened. And, um, you know, I was in mission control when September 11th happened in, in the U.S. And so, like, there's a lot of moments where you can visualize what it feels like, you know, whether it's it's a space, uh, you know, tragedy like Columbia or even just a worldwide tragedy. And so along with the, the positive part, right, um, and I have been just extremely fortunate to have had, you know, so many uh, positive moments that I can draw from. You know, we also visualize the other side because that's that's how you help think through, you know, what you need to go work on in order to not end up on that on that side of the equation in that in that visualization and end up in the in the positive visualization. But I I, I do do that a lot actually. I'm a big believer in that. What does it feel like when it goes right and when it goes wrong? So I was again fortunate enough to uh, be the NASA flight director for the very first SpaceX Dragon we flew to the space station. So this is 2012. There's no crew in it. It's a cargo vehicle, but it's the first time we had uh, partnered with a commercial company and brought a vehicle to the space station. And so, um, really, uh, you know, a, a tipping point. And so, you know, how did it feel? Right. Uh, I think that it was incredibly joyful in a, in a sort of real, really adrenaline way. You know, I played sports when I was younger, still do a little bit. And, and so the, the closest I can come for, for things that people might, you know, be familiar with is you've, you know, you've won the the championship of your sport, you know, whatever that is in, in high school or in college, or, you know, you think about the, the Olympic champions and just, you know, you're exhausted, but you also have this just incredible joy that you've worked literally years and years for this accomplishment. You know, when you, when you walk out, you just have this incredible joy. And, and for us, you know, we want human spaceflight to be, to be relevant to, you know, the entire human race, right? This is an important thing for all of us to do. You also are really tired, (laughs) You know, once once you walk out, you know, you just, wow, I've done this thing. You know, my entire life has been completely focused on this goal for, again, many years, and now you've accomplished it. So there, you also are, you also are quite tired. Um, you know, when it goes badly, you know, it's, it's a different feeling. I think, 
for for many of us, it's it's immediately all about what what we could have done better. Um, you have that really feeling of of having you know let let people down, you know, let your team down, let NASA down, let the world down. And then after a while, you sort of pick yourself up and go figure out what you can do better the next time, right? You know, you go through that that reset and that. You know we're gonna we're gonna come back better and stronger, and and you have to have that ability to to pick yourself up and move forward. So you did a degree in mechanical engineering and joined NASA as a flight controller in 1998. Twenty years later, you became the chief flight director, the first woman to hold that role. That's something I guess you hear quite a lot. But how significant is it to you that you're the first woman in the job? Yeah, it's it's more significant to me now probably than when I competed for the job. I have again been extremely fortunate that uh, you know I've always had a great support system. You know, my my parents you know are amazing. My family's amazing, and you know NASA's really great. So you know you you work hard, you put yourself in a position, you compete for the job, you win the job, and then afterwards, as people started asking me, I think I. Uh, begin to understand the significance in a way that, you know, sort of living in my small world, just, you know, working hard and and doing my job, I didn't really uh, think about or have much exposure to. But now seeing it through the eyes of of other people, you know, you asking me this question, as do many others, you, you realize the value of the position that I have and what it looks like to the world and how you know, you can, you can represent. Now I, I have a little boy and so I'm pretty focused on, you know, making sure that all of the, it's, it's important, not just all of the, you know, little girls of the world from a representation standpoint, but also to the boys of the world. I mean, it's just as important that they see, you know, strong women and, and realize that that is very normal, right. For, for everyone. I mean, my son will say, Hey, my mommy's the chief flight director. And, you know, people, people think that's awesome. And that's totally normal to him. So that's always a hard one for me because, you know, most females uh, who've been the first or who in, are in positions like this, I think really just want to be known for working hard and doing their job. But there's an aspect of it that uh, is really important. And even after a couple of years, I, you know, I'm, I'm still not quite sure how to, how to play that role, although I certainly realize now that it's very important. Well, when you joined NASA in 98, women made up just under a third of the agency's workforce. Today, women make up just over a third of NASA's workforce. Why hasn't the dial moved much in two decades? Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating question. You know, I can tell, I can give you my personal perspective, right? Um, I think that women tend to um, want to be perfect candidates for anything before they will apply. They're not as willing to just sort of roll the dice and and take a chance. That's a little bit more of a of a, at least, and this is anecdotal, right? I mean, based on me, you know, talking to people who want to, you know, be flight directors or just who I meet, you know, in the course of, of going places, um, they seem to have a little less confidence and a little, you know, about making sure they're qualified and a little more concern about being qualified. You know, that's been a, a useful thing for me to notice because now as I get asked by a lot of females, you know, sort of for counsel, should I apply for this? Should I do this? My answer is always, you know, just just give it a shot. Um, and I think I had those people looking back in my life who probably pushed me, you know, when I wasn't quite sure I was ready. Hey, just give it a shot. The other thing I think that is a challenge, and this is this is from my experience of being 
a mother is that that's a really hard balance. And so when you get to the next leadership level, um, when you're in your 30s, right? I mean, I became the the chief in my 40s, but I became a flight director in my 30s. You know, looking at, at your life and trying to figure out how to balance it is pretty daunting. And unless you have a lot of confidence that the the people around you, you know, your boss and the team are really going to be okay with all of those just sort of crazy things that happen. You know, we get called, you got to go to school, pick up your kid. Um, And really my experience has been that, that they are like my bosses were always okay but again, there's built into uh, females a little bit, I think, this reticence, right, that that it's not, you know, that, OK, well, I can't pick my kid up at three and but I have to have this job where I'm always at work at three and those two things will go together. Therefore, I'm just not going to do that. Now, a lot of those certainly apply for males as well, you know, senior fathers and, and things like that. But but for me, I feel like that's a place where I can really, uh, as a leader, help people understand and and model to my workforce, you know, that it's that it's okay. Let's talk about the first woman on the moon, which is pegged for 2024. And NASA has committed that one of the astronauts in that Artemis 3 mission will be a woman. How important is that for you personally? And how important is it that people understand how important it is that a woman be on the moon? Yeah, I think uh, it's a, first of all, going to the moon is just going to be amazing. And there really shouldn't be any difference. You know, when you make up a crew complement, right, any crew or, you know, any team that you make up, you're trying to uh, put together folks that have strengths and weaknesses and work together and get absolutely, you know, the best skills possible. And so I, I personally think that any very, very strong team would have, you know, a male comment and a female compliment because of different strengths, different personalities. And so that just makes sort of common sense to me that in order to get the best team, you would have, you know, you would have a combination. Um, so, but that's not always been historically true, right? And so I do think for us as uh, a, you know, a world to have evolved where, you know, it's just, hey, the best team is going to involve males and females and here we go. Uh, is a really important thing for, you know, uh, the world to understand. And and in this particular case, people will be able to see it, uh, like you mentioned earlier, and it will represent the evolution of, of humanity to just acknowledge that that is really a very, very strong team. So it seems, you know, natural that it's going to involve both both females and males. But to actually do it makes a difference, right? You talk about theoretically, but then to actually do it and for everyone to see it and you've done it and you've made that statement and then that is forever, forever more now, you know, the new baseline, I, th- I think will be tremendous for the world. Well, some of us will remember that NASA had to postpone its first all-female spacewalk in 2019 because, and I still can't believe this was the case, there weren't enough spacesuits in the right size. For the women, there was only one medium available. So when it comes to putting the first woman on the moon in 2024, are you coming up against any surprising things like that that maybe just haven't ever been thought about from a woman's perspective? Yeah, so there's not anything that I am aware of, right? And I, I actually, you know, had this job when we had that specific spacewalk. Um, I do, you know, the, the way we put spacesuits up on the space station, it's a, it's, a, it's a long logistics train, right? I mean, we've got to get them up from the ground and then we use them to do different spacewalks. And then we, you know, take them apart and put them together and change all parts and so on and so forth. And so, 
you know, for, for me, there was, there was nothing, um, uh, that was done on purpose that ended up in that configuration. It just, it kind of was a, a, an unfortunate thing that happened when we had, you know, two amazing female astronauts on board and, you know, still uh, from a many, many years before didn't, didn't quite have it all set up for them to go out that day. Right. Um, but you know, we were able to do it another day and it, and it was amazing. And, and really that's kind of how you solve problems that that type of thing happens all the time. It just, that one got a lot of attention, you know, because it was, it was the, the first one of its kind. And I do think when you consider the moon and how far away, you know, you sort of are from home, right. And how long it takes to get things out there. Uh, it's, it's worth, learning a lesson from that, maybe more about sort of our forward planning, not to me as much about the specific female aspect of it. Cause again, that, uh, you know, that was just that day. And then we went out and did the spacewalk another day. I mean, what you said before about, you know, it wasn't done on purpose. That's just the spacesuits that were out there. That's sort of always the way though, isn't it? In traditionally male dominated industries, you know, I mean, space, missions were designed by men for men. I never actually really thought about it that way. Because I, you know, I just, I never really thought about it, it being designed, you know, by men for men. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go back and, and ask the Apollo guys. I mean, it was a different world, right? And so the world I live in, you know, we have female flight directors and female astronauts and, you know, in every leadership position, right? I mean, some of our program managers are females. And so I, I feel like there's a tremendous amount of uh, female influence, certainly at NASA and in human spaceflight, uh, even with our, our partners uh, outside of NASA. And so, you know, I didn't grow up in a world like that. And that's interesting if there's, you know, sort of vestiges of that that's that's left over. Um, I hope not, but that's, you know, let's, I'll have to think about that and see if if I can spot and spot any as I go through my my daily work. I'm interested to hear you talk about the world you live in, because to an outsider like me, it looks like you live in two worlds, essentially, um, that you're juggling, obviously, your life on Earth, but also thinking constantly about what's happening in space and the moon landings. I mean, do you ever feel like you're living in two worlds and like you almost have a double life? Uh, yeah, actually, that's another good one, right? This is fun. Um, so a little bit, yeah, it, it is kind of weird. Now, my husband also... Um, does human spaceflight, you know, a little bit differently than me. So, so our family, I probably don't notice it as much because it's pretty normal to talk about, hey, here was a rocket launch and hey, this is what happened on the space station. And, you know, hey, this is what, you know, so-and-so said about, you know, a space contract or whatever. I mean, I, I just think that's very, very normal. Um, but I, I, you know, if you're not married to someone else who does space, then... It probably sounds a little bit strange, but yeah, I mean, I could tell you there's like a, tri you know, sw we talk about s swim lanes. And so imagine, you know, you see people swimming in a pool and each swim lane represents maybe a different, a different set of thoughts. And so I have a swim lane in my head. That's always like, what's going on on the international space station. You know, I have a swim lane in my head. That's like, you know, when's the next zoom meeting for my, you know, nine-year-old. And then I have a swim lane that's when, you know, okay, well, what's my schedule for the day? I don't know. My friends are kind of used to it because I, I really like this analogy. You, the whole double, I'm a double life. My, I'm going to go tell my son, I'm like a, I'm like a, you know, a spy or something. I'm leading a double life. But, um, you know, my, my phone rings. I mean, we'll, we'll be out with people who don't do space and, you know, my phone rings and there's been, you know, sort of extreme examples of like, you know, you get up and you leave dinner, you know, wherever, and you have to go to work and you're just apologizing to people. But 
our community, I mean, we live close to the Johnson Space Center. Everyone kind of knows. Uh, so it, even folks who don't do space, you know, if they know what my job is, uh, you know, it's it's kind of accepted that you just you get up and go do whatever you need to. I always thought that was kind of cool, right? I mean, you're, you're doing something relevant with your life, right? And so you do sacrifice in terms of maybe some personal flexibility, but, um, you know, you also are really trying to do something, something relevant that helps, you know, the whole human race. That's interesting what you say about your husband also working <laughs> in space flight. And I, I believe you did meet at NASA. I mean, is that the case that couples are often drawn together in NASA because it's such an elite and demanding world to work in? Uh, you know, there are a bunch, right? I mean, there are quite a few, but that might be as much, you know, you start as a young professional and like, this is the the group of folks, you know, that you interact with. Um, but again, you start here as a young professional because you were drawn to it. So, you know, maybe we could ask a psychologist. There's probably something to it. You know, we do spend a lot of time talking about uh, the impact on the on the families of the work we do, right? And so you you do have a group of people who's, um, you know, spouses. And so if you're a flight director, you know, your spouse works in the industry and they kind of understand right off the bat the sacrifice you're going to have to make. I mean, nights, weekends, holidays, vacations will get canceled, you know, birthday parties. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. And it takes time to learn how to sort of balance and compartmentalize, you know, your family and give them enough attention and, and then the job. And so when we hire people, um, we just have, we make sure that they, they understand and that their, you know, their families are, are supportive of it, right? Because you, you need that support system. Otherwise it can be detrimental to your family life. So it does make a huge difference. Um, you know, we, we tend to, uh, include and incorporate, you know, the, the families as much as we can. It, we, we're a team here and, and we're kind of a family here and we have to support each other. Does that mean you do or you don't want to watch space movies with your family in your time <laughs> off? <laughs> we actually watch space movies. Uh, you know, we we like space movies. Sometimes we'll get into the, you know, sort of analyzing the, the you know, the Hollywood aspects of it. Um, you know, we, we really, we really enjoy them. We tend to, we tend to try to watch them with non-space people because that's way more fun because then they ask you, you know, well, what is it really like? And you can sort of point at the movie and say, Hey, that's a pretty good representation. And, um, you know, like we love the Martian at our house. We love the Martian. Um, you know, and what, what, what I love about the Martian is just, um, you know, Matt Damon's attitude. Like he captured sort of that, you know, whatever it takes, we're going to, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to stay alive. I'm going to get home. And, you know, I was talking earlier about, you know, the sort of that, the dogged, you know, that diligence, right. And he, he did a good job of that in the movie, my, my personal opinion. So. What's at the top of your to-do list at the moment? What are the projects that you are dreaming about? Oh, well, that's a lot of fun. What are the projects we're dreaming about? So um, from a work standpoint, you know, we're spending some some time thinking about the what we call the surface operations of the moon, you know, which is really cool, right? So we talked about um, Artemis 1 and Artemis 2, and then Artemis 3 is boots on the moon. Uh, you know, but beyond that, right, the, the goal is to go to the moon sustainably, like to stay, you know, not just go and then come back and then not go again for many years. And so, we we are spending some time, you know, really thinking about that. It's not too far away. So I don't know that you call it a dream, but it is exciting to really consider, okay, we get there, we put boots on the moon, 
And then, you know, what do we have to build up on on the surface in order to, you know, have a sustainable uh, presence? And that's just exciting, right? I mean, you talk about our generation hasn't gone to the moon. Well, then nobody ever has stayed on the moon, you know, with, with this sustainable footprint. So that is really, really exciting to start thinking through and, and how to do it. Uh, I, you know, that's probably, it's probably one of the most fun ones at the moment. Well, how frustrating do you find it that you are behind the scenes and that you're not actually going to the moon yourself? Um, you know, I, I actually am not frustrated at all. I mean, certainly if somebody said, hey, Holly, you know, free ticket to the moon, I'd be like, absolutely, let's go. But, you know, I'm a big believer, like I said before, in teamwork. And so everyone has their strengths and weaknesses and what you can bring to the team. And so, you know, I realized a long time ago that that part of my strength is really, you know, here and building the ground team and, you know, taking care of the crew members and and really and really pulling this side of it together so that our, our folks that are flying, you know, our, our crew members that are flying are, are safe and successful. And so I think, I think I know that about myself and I'm okay with that. But at the same time, if somebody said, you know, Hey, free ride, we got an extra spot on the, on the, on the rocket to go to the moon. I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it down, but I don't have any, you know, regrets or concerns. I love, I love this part of, part of the equation of, of space flight and, and uh, hopefully can keep doing it for a long time. Thank you so much to Holly Ridings for being this week's imposter and leading the most fascinating double life. I love her no-nonsense, just-do-it attitude. If you can apply that to sending people to the moon, you can apply it to anything. And thank you to you, my fellow imposters. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, why not share this episode with a friend? And of course, you should follow our podcast on your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. If you go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash imposters, you can also take out a free 30-day subscription to The Telegraph and enjoy the very best reporting, analysis and commentary. That's all from me this week. See you next time. Imposters was produced by Maddie Hickish and Theodora Leloudis. Sound mixing was by Elliot Lampett and it was a Listen Entertainment production for The Telegraph. 